Hi, everybody. Welcome back. It's Jacqueline. And Alana. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow for you guys. Welcome back to the show and welcome back to our very literary August. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming back. If you're new to the show and you've missed the prior episodes from this month, we're devoting all of the episodes this month to all things related to literature. So up until this moment, we've spoken exclusively to writers, uh, right? people who write fiction and nonfiction, broadly speaking. But today we are talking to someone who is integral, integral to the way that we attain books. We're talking to a bookstore owner. We have one half of the dynamic mother-daughter duo that owns Good Books in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a bookstore dedicated to celebrating Blackness through literature. We'll be talking to her today about what it's like to be a Black bookstore owner during this time and when the desire for anti-racist literature is soaring and the public outcry to support Black-owned businesses is skyrocketing. What is it like to be caught in that perfect intersection? We will get to that later in the show, but Katie Mitchell, welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you here. I know talking off mic, it was a good, fun conversation. So I have no doubt this is going to be equally as fun. Yeah. Can I say I just like watching you talk? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like you open your mouth like so well. And I feel like whenever I talk to people, they're always like, what? What'd you say? Because I just have this draw and like all the words just run together. So I'm like taking cues from you right now. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. She's a voice. She is a voiceover artist. Oh, that is so, that makes too much sense because like, I was literally thinking she's like a professional talker. She is. Thank you. Oh my God. If black girls could blush, I'm blushing right now. Thank you. Um, We're super excited to chat with you. You're also joining us for our small business segment. So Jack, without further ado, should we put our money where our mouth is? Yes. Let's put our money where our mouth is. And for those of you who are first time listeners, Put Your Money Where Your Mouth Is is a segment where Alana and I spotlight a Black or Asian-owned businesses that we want to support and letting our listeners know about them as well. We believe in supporting local, female, Black, Asian businesses. It is our form of economic protest. And with that being said, I will put my money where my mouth is first. So this one, I had to do a little bit of research because I wanted to find something. We've covered a lot in our in our month of August. Um, from everything from like boba to uh, r- ring lights, nail polish, yeah. jewelry, all that Beauty. stuff. Um, so I wanted to spotlight Native Soul, um, Soul like S O L. Um, it's a place for creative, earth friendly designs. It is owned and operated by Filipina American designer May Selim and her partner Ty Ward. They are local to, I would say, Southern California, the Long Beach-based <laughs> duel. They began Native Soul in 2005, um, and it's in alignment with their commitment to live a socially conscious lifestyle. With, For those of you guys who don't know, I am all about that. And if, if uh, you guys are interested as well, um, their goal is to create unique handmade creations using consciously sourced and sustainable materials. Um, so they upcycle and they creatively repurpose vintage and salvage materials to make new jewelry and clothing items. Um, their clothing is made with natural fibers, organic cotton, hemp, linen, recycled materials. 
Um, so it's really cool. They also use um, their platform of clothing and design to promote positive social change inspired by nature, people, indigenous designs, cultures, and street art. So they're pretty awesome. Their, um, okay. their store is, you can find them on Etsy, um, Native, N-A-T-I-V-E, capital S-O-L. Um, and it's all on there. And then they're also on Instagram um, at Native Soul. So check it out, guys. All righty. That was my segment. Katie, how about yours? Okay. I will talk about this um, Atlanta-based business. I'm really into thrifting. Um, yes. And I feel like it is having a really cool moment where it's not just you have to like dig through a bunch of crap at Goodwill or Salvation Army or where like the legacy thrift stores, mm-hmm. but I'm seeing a lot of Instagram thrift stores, which I think is really cool because they did all the digging for you and you don't have to do that anymore. So curated. I'm very, yes, very curated. Like this stuff is so cute. Sometimes I'm like, mm, is that cute because your model is cute or is it cute? I know. Cute? <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we gotta let them have it. Um, so I would like to shout out the Wild Vintage. That is their name on Instagram, and they spell wild W-Y-L-D-E. Um, so they're in East Point, which is um, you know, just south of Atlanta. They do home goods, they do um jewelry clothing. It's all super cute. They have a very small boutique right now because of COVID they're doing um, shopping by appointment, but they ship all over the country. The woman Brie Wild is very cool, very nice. And what I love about Brie and her team is that they will post other black owned vintage people. Like they post their competition. That's awesome. I feel like you have to be really really secure in what you're doing to post your competition. Like mm-hmm. I've seen stuff and I'm like, Oh, reposted that. Well, let me go follow this person too. <laughs> so it's like, we're all going to eat. So I love that about, um, free. And I love the wild vintage, super cute stuff. And it's a affordable price and yeah. Shout out to Brie and her team at the wild vintage. Yeah. It's very lift as we climb. Like we're all going mm-hmm. to ascend to greatness and success together. No one will be left behind. Right. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's definitely enough money out here for everyone to. Um, oh yeah, like the money's not running out. Let's let's share no. it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Damn. Okay. I mean, generally, I feel like Jack and I always have uh, small theme. businesses that like connect, but it seems like you two really covered the fashion, <laughs> and I did not. But that's okay. Um, so I am a childless woman, but that doesn't mean that I am not surrounded by new moms or women who are about to give birth. And so I found myself buying a lot of um, baby gifts and postpartum gifts for these women. And I stopped and thought, hold up, there's got to be a better way. And when I say a better way, there's got to be a black or an Asian way. So I found a company called Coddle, C-O-D-D-L-E. Um, on Instagram, they're coddle.co, the dot is spelt, and they are a plant-based and organic postpartum self-care business. So this is a minority and woman-owned enterprise. enterprise. It's uh, owned by Ruth Martin Gordon, and she simply started the business because she said, quote, what to expect after giving birth and how to care for myself during recovery during recovery, end quote, wasn't necessarily that baby books were telling her about. 
We all know what to expect when you're expecting, but apparently those books don't talk about postpartum care and postpartum products. So she took matters into her own hands and she has a range of products. Uh, She's got all natural nipple bombs and perineal bombs and postpartum massage oil, put the husband to work or tub teas to help with vaginal soreness or vaginal bleeding. I've gifted a couple of their gift sets, uh, specifically the postpartum self-care recovery box, but they've got all kinds of other sets in there as well. Uh, Products are paraben-free, SLS-free for all skin types and are cruelty-free as well. So I will drop all of the information to all of these businesses in the show notes. You can stay fly. And if you just gave birth, you can take care of yourself and you can support uh, Black-owned and Asian-owned business in the process. So with that said, let's get to today's episode because, y'all, it's a real good one. So just a little bit about Katie. So Katie Mitchell and her mother, Catherine, own Good Books in Atlanta, Georgia. It's an online shop. And when the world is not uh, racked with COVID, they also have pop-up bookstores. Um, But most of all, Good Books is a love letter to their community and to Blackness. Whose Blackness? Everybody's Blackness. It's all beautiful and it's all accepted. Uh, they married their two love in lives, which are which are books and black folks. Gotta love that. Uh, Katie and Catherine are happy to send you brand new or pre-loved books by mail wherever you are. And it's their way of paying homage to blackness through literature. Um, but they don't just sell books. They sell vinyl so you can keep your brain flexed with a beat close by just in case you need a little reading dance break. Because sometimes I know I do. <laughs> With that said, Katie Mitchell, once again, welcome. We're happy to have you. Thank you. This is my first um, podcast interview about good books. So this is exciting. Wow. Oh my God. Yes. Awesome. We are so humbled and so (laughs) grateful to have you on the show. Um, I am a huge fan of mother-daughter duels. I think I was raised by a single mom. I think mothers are everything. I'm not discounting fathers out there, just so you know. Um, I work alongside (laughs) my mother. I have a family business. So I have to ask, what made you want to own a bookstore? What made you want to go into business with your mom? Yeah. So just the way um, my brother and I were raised, like my mom raised us on black books. I legitimately, legitimately thought white kids didn't have books to read because there are no (laughs) white people in my books when I was a kid. I love that. (laughs) Like these poor white folks. Um, So yeah, like that's just how I was raised and, you know, being a youngish adult. Um, having my apartment, my friends would come over and they would just be like awestruck by my bookshelf. And I'm like, wait, everyone doesn't have this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, we were just like talking me and my mom at breakfast one day and she was like, what if we started a bookstore? And from that moment to when she said that, to when we opened book, good books, it was less than a month. Like we were just like Whoa. so in tune with each other. Wow. Yeah. Like we knew it was going to be all black. We knew it was going to be mobile. Like we just like knew these things. So it was like really easy to mesh just because that's how we operate. So it's yeah. been really fun so far. Like I love my mom and love doing yeah. stuff with her. And it's like, you get to do another thing. So it's it's really fun. That is so beautiful. I love that. I think I think it's so important to to have that special bond, you know, and to be able to share it with others is, is even is even more what a gift. Um with that being said, how do you guys 
choose the books that you sell? Do you guys have a, a specific pro? Is there like a cool mom and daughter process you guys do to curate the store? Do you guys ever fight? <laughs> I know I fight with my mom. Um, so <laughs> do you disagree on titles, on authors? I mean, and, and how do you guys resolve that? Is that like, you know, sweep it under the bus? Is it like an all out shouting match? <laughs> Just curious. <laughs> Yeah, so our curation process is not um, down to a science. It's really, well, it started off with like stuff we like to read, which was kind of a mistake. Um, because, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a very, I mean, the things we like to read other, our customers like to read, but we found that our customers reading palette was a lot larger and wider than ours and more diverse. So for example, I'm not um, like a comic book reader or a graphic mm. novel reader. Um I, my mom reads young adult, but I don't really read young adults. So like, I would be like, oh, young adult, no one wants to read that. And then people would be like, oh, do you have more young adult? And I'm like, mm. oh. um, so it really um, changed and evolved with our customers, like in, in partnership with our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, with all this going on over the summer with the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, a yeah. lot more people that we don't know about um, who are not getting that <sighs> yes. airtime. Um, a lot of more people wanted to read anti-racist reading as um as the news articles have seen or have shown a lot more people were interested in the non-fiction non-fiction aspect which is a little bit newer um before it was like toni morrison and um yes or nail hurston like people wanted to read those like legacy you know canon Mm -hmm. um right but now it's more non-fiction like well what's what happened with the tuskegee experiment and um now what they want to get like now to they want to get educated. Yeah. And you know, I I definitely had conflicts about the timing, right? right <laughs> of course. There were there were times when we had books or James Baldwin's also like super popular. He does nonfiction and fiction, but um there were times when I had a James Baldwin book that I knew was super good that just no one would buy. And I'm like, wow. this book has been sitting in here for months, and then now I'm Everyone. getting eat emails from people like, um, I saw your article in NBC. I just want to let you know about this guy named James Baldwin. <laughs> oh no. Let me let you know a couple of things about James Baldwin. Actually. Wow. Like, okay. Thank you for the wow. suggestion. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's interesting, you know, um, just dealing with people who are, yeah, people who are like trying to, you know, embrace it and learn themselves. But also I, I heard this quote, the other day is um, no one is more pious than the newly converted. And I think I I've, heard, yes. um, I, I'm definitely experiencing that. There's mm-hmm. definitely truth to that. I think also when it comes to literature for black Americans, we often have our feet in two different worlds. Mm. We're familiar with the quote unquote, like high school and, and middle school, like uh, required reading. Mm-hmm. So you're like 1984s, your Fahrenheit 451s, your Catcher in the Rye. God, I really hated that book. You're of mice and men's. But then we've also got black literature as well. That means more to us because it's experiences that we understand and it features people that look like us. Mm-hmm. And having to explain that to white friends has always been a little bit of a challenge. And getting them to read black books yeah, that's, that's, has that's, been that's... even harder. And it's sort of, mm-hmm. it's really disheartening. Yeah, it's interesting because I think as Black um, people, we're just conditioned or born into like, well, you're going to have to identify with these white characters. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? No matter what. Yeah, because that's where they are. Elle Woods. I love Elle Woods. Been to Snap. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But like, (laughs) are white people watching Bats? I don't think so. 
Yep, that's right. true. <laughs> yeah, so, very much so. I think the same goes with books. Mm. Ooh, wow. So, um, I was when I, I read the, I read the the really good NPR article, and we were doing a little bit of research and prep for this episode. Um, and it was very clear to us that um, you guys all know each other um, from James and Tom at S O N Books to Marcus Books at Reparations Club to Janet and Allison at Source Booksellers. Um, you guys seem like a special community. Um, I, I'm curious as to why that is. And if so, especially during now that everything's happening, do you guys find yourselves kind of leaning on each other for more support or no? Is there any of that happening? Yeah. So I think um, just as a black bookseller in the U.S., I want to say there's not that many of us, but I know there are more that we just don't know about and that aren't getting as much attention. Um, but whenever I'm in a new city, I check out the black bookstore. So if mm. that's um, D.C. Loyalty Books, mm. you know, Oakland Marcus, um, New York, the Lit Bar, like that's just something that I do. So I will go introduce myself, um, you know, like even before I had good books, it's just something that I wanted to do. So now when we're all like getting mentioned in the same articles and like everyone's yeah. like adding us to these lists and people are kind of like following us in mask, I think it goes that way. But as far as support that um, I haven't like picked up the phone, like girl, I need help. But I think that um, <laughs> the thing that I try to do is like, if someone reaches out to me for a book that I don't have, I try to direct them to loyalty books in DC or the lip bar in um, New York. They're both black woman owned. Awesome. So I try to do that. Um, and I don't say like, oh, hey, girl, I just directed someone to you. I just like, OK, here, here, look at this one. You know what I'm saying? Like right. yeah. just a small thing, just so people don't go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or something like that, because, you know, they will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they will. Well, it's interesting because Janet at, at Source Bookseller said that a big corporation like a Barnes and Noble sort of helps them in ways, too, in terms mm-hmm. of calibrating what books are people are interested in, maybe what books they need to stock up on more than they would, uh, which I thought was an interesting sort of uh, line of logic. Like this big corporation feeds the smaller ones. I had never really thought about that before. Hmm. Yeah, if you can look at um, like Barnes & Noble and Amazon and see like what's selling out on their sites. Um, what are they promoting the most? So like what mm. which books are getting a lot of PR? You can also see that through Instagram, um, right. through even through the other non-black independent bookstores, like who's um, who's speaking at Pals, who's speaking at Strand, like Got who's it. getting that that airtime that you want to put in there, like who's the um, the pick for the well black girl, well read black girl book club at all these you know white owned bookstores because they all have those book clubs too. So of yeah. course, got it. I just joined No Names Book Club, but mm-hmm. I will never join like a Reese Witherspoon book club ever. There's just no way. <laughs> No shame to Reese, but Reese like, does her thing in no, no fires and yeah, it's, true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, I will say because of No Names Book Club, I read or I'm beginning to read The Wretched of the Earth, which I had never heard of, mm-hmm. and it never really capitalism and reading about capitalism is not really my thing. But No Name, I'm on your club. I'm in your club, and I I I want to learn with you. Yeah. Um, but I gotta say, I'm gonna steal what you said about looking for black owned bookstores in new places that I travel. Cause I generally look for African-American art exhibits mm-hmm. and vintage stores, but I'm going to mm-hmm. now add black owned bookstores yeah. to that list. Yeah. Like, it's really fun. Yeah. It feels like it, it would be a great way to explore like neighborhoods that I might not. Slice have. of history too, you know, cause I feel like it's a true. lot of bookstores are usually have been there for centuries. Not they centuries, persevere. Decades. Yeah. De- yeah. <laughs> centuries. I was like, centuries? <laughs> 
I'm in the wrong age. <laughs> well, but I think that that's a really important thing to say because Black-owned bookstores have had a really long and important history in this country. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They, yeah. I mean, they were and still are when the world is functioning. And I guess also virtually the places that the black community gathers, it's where we share ideas. It's where we meet new people. It's where we bond. It's where we Mm -hmm. feed our appetite for books by black people and about black people. Right. Celebrating. Yeah. It also feels like there's a generational component to shopping at a black bookstore. Like I used to shop here when I was a kid. Now Mm -hmm. I'm taking my daughter to shop here too. I take my younger cousin to shop at Essawan because it just feels like the the natural thing to do. Right. Yeah. But they've also had a lot of pushback as well. I mean, I feel like it used to be a place back in the 60s and I guess into the early 70s where people thought of black bookstores as a place to share extremist ideas, mm-hmm. which I think is way long behind us. But um, why do you think black bookstores are so necessary? Yes, they're necessary in a time like this, but even before this time, they've always felt essential. Yeah, for sure. I mean, going on your point of extremist ideas, I don't think that is behind us because when you think about what the mainstream thinks of extremists, it's Mm. feeding poor people. It's, you know, universal um, basic income. Um, It's um, not charging kids to eat at school. It's those things that are extreme and, you know. (laughs) I sit corrected. I'm thinking J. Edgar Hoover extreme, but you're right. And I sit corrected. Yeah. So like um, the, the book clubs that we see as a legacy book club are, excuse me, bookstores that we see as legacy bookstores like Marcus Books in um, Oakland, those were created out of the civil rights movement, right? right? So there needed to be a space for black people to congregate, to share ideas, um, to just have that third space where that it, that was a safe space, right? Mm. And so now we're seeing a proliferation of bookstores again, right? So there's the Salt Eaters that's coming in Inglewood. There's Black Garnet Books that's coming in Minneapolis. Um, I'm relatively new, Good Books in Atlanta, um, for Keeps, Atlanta. So these bookstores right. are coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement because they're still essential. Um, they, we need that third space. And a lot of the books from the 60s and 70s aren't around, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because the FBI, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, the <laughs> FBI <laughs> saw that they were extremists and they, you know, um, had them, you know, investigated. They were mm-hmm. um, doing wiretaps on the people that were going there, the people who owned it, right? So like this idea of Black people sharing knowledge through books and through speech has always been seen as dangerous because mm-hmm. it wasn't too long ago that reading, period, was illegal. So that's a... That's a natural step. Reading's illegal for enslaved folks. How dare these Black people have a bookstore where they're talking anti-war, anti-capitalism, anti-white supremacy, right? Because white supremacy is the way of the land. So like you saying anti-white supremacy, that's extreme. That's that's, um, un-American. You know what I'm saying? So they've been essential in that way. But I think they're essential now because right now we're in a global protest movement, right? A lot of the Mm -hmm. things that we've been talking about in the 60s and 70s are coming up again. And I think um, with like No Names Book Club and just seeing things on the news, you really don't have to read anything to become radicalized. Just open your eyes. Open your eyes and you'll become radicalized, you know? Because like (laughs) my parents, they're not, you know, they're not, (laughs) they're... (laughs) <laughs> no, you guys should see 
what's going on. You guys can't see because oh, you're man. listening. But if you guys could watch this episode, oh, it's great. It's great. Sorry. My parents were born in the 60s. Good faces happening yeah. in Jackson, Mississippi. They weren't raised to be these um, radical people raging against the machine. But just seeing what's right. happening in D.C. with, um, you know, Donald Trump ordering, you know, troops on mm-hmm. American citizens, that will radicalize you. Right. So put that on top of reading, reading yeah. some real scholarship about what's what's really going on and what's what's really happening in this country, on in the world, um, to Black people specifically. Ciao. Mm-hmm. I also have to jump in because you said Raging Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine is my favorite band. So you can also <laughs> go ahead and listen to them as well because they will break off some knowledge. I've also been listening to a lot of Dead Prez recently. So if you mm-hmm. want to also get knowledge through music, I highly recommend any and all Dead Prez albums who essentially talked about this time that we are in right now um, almost 20 years ago. Right. Um, and I also feel like if James Baldwin were here today, he'd be like, now I told y'all. Like, I told He you. really did. <laughs> Ahead of Him its and time. Lorraine, quite frankly. They knew. Yes. So there are two forces at play right now. There's the need to consume books on race or how not to be racist. And the call to diversify your dollars by supporting black businesses. Mm-hmm. And black owned bookstores sit right at that perfect intersection. And as a non-bookstore owner, I'm like, it must be all bank. Like, shit must be sweet. But I know that it's not that easy. And if it were that easy, we wouldn't be sitting here having a podcast episode about this. So what's it like to be a Black-owned bookstore right now? See, I think the thing about Black bookstores in particular that is separate from Black businesses generally Uh is that Black bookstores... And I'll speak generally. I'm sure there's some exceptions, but I don't think that anyone opens a back a black bookstore to become a millionaire. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. yeah, yeah. There are, and like I said, they're born out of these movements, mm-hmm. and these movements are anti-capitalist. Right. So they're not. They're very counter to the Barnes and Noble, Amazons of the world. Those are mm-hmm. capitalist institutions. the The goal is to make money. You know, if they have to throw a Black Lives Matter hashtag in there to get some coins, and that's what they're going to do. Black-owned bookstores don't have to do that, right? Because they were saying Black Lives Matter before it was a popular hashtag, before it was, you like, you don't need a press statement. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, you, right. you know where Black-owned bookstores stand. Right. So to be getting all this um, attention, to get be getting this, these new customers, you know, yeah, yeah, you would think it feels like great, but it's like, at what cost? Mm-hmm. I'd much rather none of this be happening. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm met, I'm much rather like because a year ago, and it's funny because a year ago this stuff was happening, but I think the pandemic, um, everybody out of work. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, mm-hmm. no, we don't got a job, so we're gonna go um burn some shit down. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what uh-huh. we're gonna do. So I think all that the confluence of all those things um made this moment possible. But like a year ago, all these things were happening. Police brutality was happening. Um all the ills that black people face were still happening probably on the same level. And I was like getting one or two orders a week. <laughs> if I was oh. hustling, if I was hustling, you know what I'm oh, saying? Wow. And I will say like, we were newer than, you know, right. we didn't have the press that we're getting now, but I much rather be in that situation than seeing a man get lynched right. <laughs> on, yeah. on, on live TV. You know what I'm saying? So yes. it it's, it's strange. Like if it was like 
oh, Beyonce said read books, y'all, and now everybody's reading black books. So it would be like, hey, y'all read it, we getting money, but it's not the case. So it's like, what was the catalyst, I think? And that's what yeah. makes it, you know, um, yeah. it makes it more complicated than just, we're getting a lot of money now. Yeah. For sure. I, I don't think I'm the only one that's watched Black is King multiple times, but mm. I, I, I might be on an island by myself there. <laughs> um, can I just ask, like, have you seen an influx in customers? Specifically, have you seen an increase in your Caucasian customers? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny. I was talking to my partner earlier today. I was like, I think all the white people that uh, buy from Good Books think they're the only white person buying from Good Books. <laughs> going to ask a follow-up that was very similar to that so i'm glad <laughs> glad that they're you, not that alone you said that. yeah like i think they're like oh i found this like cool urban thing yeah, and- i love that <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's so Got funny okay. uh, you did mention earlier you know we were talking about the titles and what kinds of books like you know young adult versus you know graphic novels all that stuff um and especially with right now you know what are are there obviously there are i bet but are there specific titles um that are more popular with your readers right now because of what's happening um how do you feel about the popularity of black author reading lists white alley reading lists all these anti-racism reading lists do you think they're helpful or harmful um, harmful in the sense that one could be led to believe that racism is something that can be just fixed, you know, by reading a few of these book titles on the list. Right, yeah. It's like, I read these anti-racist books. I'm, I'm not a racist. Yes. Racism. <laughs> well, I think if they're actually reading the books, they'll um, be quickly disabused of that notion. But um, <laughs> maybe if they're just buying them and not reading them, they think that. I think there's a lot of virtual virtue signaling on Instagram, like, Check out my book stack, my to be read book stack. Um, just like, well, girl, what did you read it? Sorry, you said virtue, virtual signaling, virtual virtue signaling. signaling. Oh, I've never heard of that before. Okay. Yeah, like, um, it's it's like performative allyship on yeah. like in a way, yeah. But like on like through images or pictures or or like just I mean, you can do on it. social media. It doesn't have to be on social media. No, it, it can be in person. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Like, say someone like, um, you're you're wearing a Asada is welcome here shirt, but then you like pass up a person who's asking for money on the street and like, ah, get away from me. Right. Like, right, right. Whoa. What's right, going exactly. on here? Right. Okay, um, got it. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of that with the reading list, but I don't think they're particularly harmful. Um, you know, people are going to engage at the level that they want to engage in. And mm-hmm. I think um, there'll be a higher percentage of people who do read the books, do take something from it. Um, and if you take anything from it, then you know that it is an ongoing process and reading a book or two isn't going to fix racism. But right. I mean, you can fix your individual actions. And I think a lot of well-meaning white people act a fool. And so if you read <laughs> these books and see, oh, maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I shouldn't have did that. Mm-hmm. You can like change your actions going forward. And those, those small changes do add up. Mm, that's good. Yeah. What, uh, what Gotta titles- start somewhere. Yeah. What titles for you are you like, oh, this book is getting a lot of play. Please don't say White Fragility, my God. I haven't sold White Fragility. I've been asked yes! you, but I haven't. Okay. <laughs> I could have made never. some coin. I could have made some coin off of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one book that I'm super surprised is selling a lot because it's like, you see it like in every um, thrift store is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. 
Yes. Huh. Um, so for folks who don't know what the story is about, it's about medical racism. This um, poor Black woman had cancer. Doctors took her cells mm-hmm. without permission from her or her family. And her cells are still in use today. It's called the HeLa cell. Um, and so, and her family got no money from that, even though the pharmaceutical industry made billions of dollars. Oprah made a movie and still didn't give them any money. It's all a mess. Um, so like that one, I'm like, okay, so y'all want to learn about medical racism. Um, but then a fiction book that a lot of people have been interested in, and I am I still kind of don't know why. I know it's on Oprah's reading book, uh, yeah, book club book list, club. but I'm like, is this why? But I'm not sure. Is I think Payne I know say. Oh, no. Okay, no. I thought you were going to say such a fun age. I was like, I, I know why. <laughs> oh, no. Like, I'm talking about, like, older books that, like, I was like, Got it. okay. So, yeah, Cane River is one. But, I mean, I'm here for it all. You know, people's taste, I think, is influenced by other people. But that's not mm-hmm. a bad thing. Like, our, our taste of everything is always influenced by something. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, there was a, an article on the Washington Post written by Trey Johnson. And it was all about how when when social justice movements and social uprisings and racial uprisings are happening black people generally band together we chat we talk we share ideas white people have a tendency to uh to to join book clubs mm. and to read these racial books among themselves and have these racial conversations excuse me in the safety of their book club generally populated by other white people who are not mm. going to press them on problematic thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. Interesting. I, I thought so too. I hadn't really thought about that. And then and, I guess and none my, of us are ever going to know, right? Because none of right. us are white. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> this is very true. So black bookstores are busier than ever. But as you said earlier, it took essentially a pandemic and the world coming to a screeching halt and people having nothing but time on their hands. Uh, And then murders of people like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain to get this country to really wake up and see that racial injustice exists in this country on a variety of levels. And you mentioned having troubled feelings about that. I am right there with you. How do we reconcile those feelings? I don't know if we can. I don't know if I can. Um, It's like it's it's pretty disheartening because I (laughs) am. Tell it. I, <laughs> say it, girl. I was going to say, I unfortunately am around a lot of white people during the day. But, you know, unfortunately, I'm around a lot of white people during the day. And it's like, I I went through like a, a really traumatic personal thing earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. And they all knew about it. And they all were like, girl, is you going to get these um, documents in or not? Like, they did not. They did oh. not care. But now when it's like a countrywide thing. Right, globally. Like, yeah, they were like, oh, let's check in. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what is it? Yeah, they're like, oh, I heard about George Floyd. Let's check in. I was like, I did not know George Floyd. Like, of course I care about that. Right. But right. it's like, why do you think, like, you should check in with me specifically? Like, you need to check in with your white folks. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. I was going through something where I was, like, visibly just, like, down and out. And, like, there was no... And so it's like, there's no compassion. I, there was no sympathy. No, there was no, no compassion. Yeah. And so like, I don't believe your compassion now. Only like, I feel yeah, like after, right. Because after. when it's like a personal thing that no one really like, that's not on Facebook, like no one's talking about like, Oh, what happened to Katie in February? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But now yeah. everyone's talking about this thing. It's like, Oh, well, let me reach out to Katie. Cause I know she's black and I know she can talk about black mm-hmm. stuff. And right. yeah, she, she got Afro and you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. That's, that's so, that is super disheartening to hear. 
Yeah. So it's like, how do I reconcile that? Like, cause it's like on a business level, I'm seeing it, but like also on a personal level, I'm seeing totally seeing like the disconnect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not just today, right? It's just, it's been a long time coming that it's been like this. Exactly. Like if you really cared about this stuff, you would have been outspoken from, totally. from jump. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it sort of feels like there's a lot of white people that are that are just now discovering racism. These were the same white people that thought, quote, black people have a chip on their shoulder right. and that racism doesn't exist. And now it exists. And it's like, let's call Katie. Let's call. <laughs> let's call Alana. Let's call all the black people that we know. We've got to make these phone calls. We've got to check in to essentially pat ourselves on the back and say, we have done enough. We're not bad white people because we're reaching out and we're caring. See, you have a missed call for me, Katie, or something like that. And it's weird because it's like the people that contact me, I don't see myself as like their friends, but I'm like, so why are you calling me? You know, like, why don't you call your friends? But like, you talk to so few black people that you have to (laughs) reach down and be like, Katie. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. For sure. For sure. That's, yeah. It's pretty obvious. The the truth is, is pretty obvious right there. For sure. So, okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on, so, okay, we know that there is no one book or collection of books that is going to stop, solve racism. Um, but with that being said, how do we make sure that the necessary, that the necessary other work outside of reading is being done based on, you know, what you've spoken about here, your personal story? I mean, are there any limitations to anti-racist reading? How do you feel about all that? So your question is, what's the limitations to anti-racist reading? And is there a book that doesn't have those limitations? So do you think there are limitations to anti-racist reading? Like, I don't know, say they shouldn't be reading something or if they, I mean, how do you, do you think there are any, any sort of limitations when it comes to that? I mean, I feel like when someone picks up a book, they have to kind of, it shouldn't just be like blind picking up a book, right? So you have to think about what you're wanting to learn, um, what you know you that you don't know, and mm, know that's, that that's most books, yeah, most books are about like a very specific portion of this larger issue when it comes to anti-racist reading. And I'm not talking about books that say anti-racist in the cover, because that isn't the only anti-racist reading there is. A lot of autobiographies are anti-racist reading. Mm. If you read Asada Shakur's, Malcolm X's, even Maya Angelou's autobiographies, those are anti-racist readings. You know what I'm saying? I always tell people, if you want to become anti-racist, just read a history book. Mm. Just read about the history of this country and you will be anti-racist because you will see everyone that's telling the truth now. You'll see (laughs) what is going on and like what has specifically been done to black people. So it's not... Um, and I think a lot of those books aren't added to these lists. Mm. So you also need to do your own research and it's perfectly fine to start with those lists because I understand that not everyone has, um, that background. So start with the list. I love it. Start with the list, but then go, go deeper, find something that you read in one of those books that you find interesting, a particular topic and go a level down and go a level down. Mm. And then you'll really, you'll really gain that knowledge and it won't just be the top level, uh, everyone has bias. You know what I'm saying? Like, go, right. go further. Right. right I think right. also the way that you mentioned history and we talk about it a lot on this show. We and do. I think that when it comes to race relations and racial history in this country, we've got to change the way that we teach history in this country from grade oh. school up. Just because I feel like 
there's a lot of white people now that are trying to read these anti-racist books, but also just don't have a good context for race relations that right. happened throughout the United States from from the inception of the United States. I mean, I don't know if anyone um, watched that show Watchmen with Regina King, but the the Tulsa race riots that happened in 1929, that I got reached out to by a lot of white friends that were like, did this thing really happen in Tulsa? Oh my God, are you serious? And it's like, yes, where have you been? Like, yes, absolutely. It feels like our history books sort of start at slavery in grade school, but it's not really a full and complete understanding of what slavery is. And depending on where you are in the United States, you're either going to get a full-ish picture or you're going to get a very glazed over picture let i mean let's keep it real in the south i feel like there's a lot of school districts that sort of glaze over racism for a variety of reasons uh our parents want want slavery to kind of be glazed over because it leads to uncomfortable conversations white parents i mean uh that they're going to have to have with their kids and then i feel like our history books sort of stop at the civil rights movement yeah it's like slavery civil rights movement that's it, Black people. You're done. And right. so I feel like we need to change the way that we teach history. And our history is not pretty and our history is not kind. But if we're not equipping people with the right knowledge, we're never going to get past these problems that we continue to have ever since, oh, I don't know, James Baldwin has been writing. Yeah, so I I oscillate between saying like, Yes, to everything you said, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But like, so I think about um, my education, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So I was super into knowing about Anne Frank. I was like, oh my God, Anne. Okay, okay. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, I was so sad when when I got to the end of the book and she was was gone. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what if in the United States, Everyone read Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl, like how everyone read The Diary of Diary Anne Frank. Of Frank. Mm. But like that would never happen. You know what I'm saying? No. Yeah. Like what if everyone read Things Fall Apart the way we read Fahrenheit 451? Like that would mm. never happen. Yeah. So like do we wait on the school system to mm. change that or do we just take it upon ourselves? Because like I said, Black people, it was illegal to read. Right. FBI put a hit on black bookstores. So do you really think that when you when we send our kids, well, even when we go to college to these like state schools that aren't HBCUs, when we go to these institutions that are ran by white people, right. do we do we really expect them to do right? Do we, do we really expect them because this stuff will make you angry? Oh yeah. Yes. This stuff <laughs> will make you angry. It'll radicalize sure. you and they don't want a radicalized Mm-mm. black population. No. So like, can you really expect them to change that or do we take it upon ourselves? Take it I think so. Um, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. And yeah, it's like Yeah, I just, that's a a mind-blowing statement actually that I had not ever considered until sitting down to record this, but I think you're really right. Yeah, like I I and to I, be to be honest, <laughs> I don't think they're going to change it anytime soon. And so I do think it is, I mean, like, shout out to your mom, you know, for like surrounding you with black authors, black stories. Like, I think that that's amazing. You surrounding know? Yeah. you with the truth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I remember, do you remember that, um, that movie, Our Friend Martin? No, I don't know if I've ever seen that. 
Ooh, that's a classic. Okay, I'm let me adding give it to you. my, my <laughs> watch list. It's a, it's, a, it's a kids movie. But um, <laughs> so it's basically like this cartoon of like these kids find out about Martin Luther King. And then they're like, dang, we, we wish Martin Luther King would have never died. And so they like, I don't know. I don't really know how it happens, but they wish he never died. So he never dies. And then they like show like what the future would be like ah. if Martin Luther King would have never died. And it was just desolate. Wow. Thinking back, I was like, Martin Luther King was not a martyr. He did not have to die. <laughs> but I remember, I bring it up because I remember being in like first grade or kindergarten. We lived in Kansas at the time. Mm-hmm. And I brought the movie to school. I'm like, y'all need to watch this. <laughs> so I brought the movie to school and we were watching it. And then this a scene comes up. So they show like they break in between cartoons and real life footage. So they break into Ooh, footage love. of people getting um, sprayed by water hoses during a march, right? And I remember my white teacher like going up and fast forwarding it and like standing in front of it. And like afterwards, I'm like, why did you do that? And she said it was too, you know, I don't remember the word she used, but basically like too much mature for the other Mm. kids to see. And the other kids, if you know anything about Kansas, the other kids were all white. And I was just like, Uh I feel like that was like a like light bulb moment in my just like education is like, oh, so like I'm old enough and mature enough to see this happening. But these white kids aren't. Um, right right so like that's our education system too it like sure it it, white innocence is foundational to it right Uh white kids can't see their white ancestors doing this to black people yes yeah (laughs) Yeah, absolutely yeah it it reminds me sort of hearing that shoots me back to when my parents taught me about slavery and that's an uncomfortable conversation for all parties involved no no parent wants to talk to their kid about slavery but it's a very real fact of all of every life of every black child. We sit there with our parents. We have the conversation. It's not easy. There's lots of questions. There's sadness. There's anger. And I feel like to erase it from our history books is very much saving the feelings of white people. Why? Because simply put, they don't want to put up, they don't want to deal with the fucked up shit that their ancestors did. And are still doing. what they're stealing. Yeah. <laughs> they doing it. Did we say that at the same time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, I have a quote here. I wonder if you'll recognize it. Quote, things are trendy for a while and then they're not. Once it's comfortable for people, (laughs) once it's comfortable for people that go back to their old ways, was it still, will it be, will it still be going on a year from now or is it just a flash in the pan? I have a feeling you know who said this, but I will tell our audience this was said by our guest katie mitchell uh, in an npr article and i um i want to know a couple of things what do you think will be the future of black bookstores and what do you think the lasting impact of this moment will be because i'm with you like i hate to think that being anti-racist is trendy but i also mm -hmm. think that your word usage is absolutely perfect yeah spot on even though i feel sick saying that out loud yeah. Yeah. So I definitely think that there there are people that see it as trendy. I've I've seen people that I that I um be around that have already like, mm-hmm. okay. Well I tried to check in with you girl, you wouldn't talk to me, so whatever. Um <laughs> that's, that's the end of my activism. Yeah. But I mean I think um because it's a it's a larger thing. I think it's larger than just like police brutality. It's a lot of things. And I think a lot of people are opening their eyes to that. So I think the future of black bookstores we see a lot of them opening right now um, with coronavirus. Who knows when they can like truly be open, open like they 
would be, but I, I think it, it looks positive and I think we need these spaces. So I am going to speak it into existence that the future of black bookstores looks good. Um, I see it as being like a resurgence, like the Harlem Renaissance, right? Like I, I see a black arts movement coming and bookstores are involved with that artists, musicians, you know, every, everybody plays a role. And I think black bookstores can be those institutions where all this art can um, come together. All these thinkers, um, all mm. these writers can come together um, and really just build something like I, I see it as world building. Like we're building a new world and black bookstores are uh, foundational to that world building. Mm, I, I just got that. chills because I, I, I agree with you. There's a renaissance coming on. And when I've told that to some people, they're like, wait, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, like once Corona passes, quote unquote, like we're, it's a portal into a, a, a new time and a new world. Sure. And Absolutely. There yeah. will be a renaissance. Nothing, nothing is going to be the same. Yeah. And like, let's not settle for a performative allyship. Let's not settle for, I think we all know a, a handful of white girls who are like, oh, is this what we're doing? We're, we're uh, anti-racist book reading. Okay. Oh, we're, we're posting these suggestions. Okay. I'm going to do that now. Okay, great. Am I done? Like, have I done my part? And I think if you have those friends, have them pull up or maybe you might want to drop them. Just saying. Oh, I don't have no white friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love your honesty. I love it. Yeah. Well, okay. So now that, so let's have a little bit of rapid fire. So I'm going to ask you 10 questions. Answer the first thing that comes to mind. No answer is right. No answer is wrong. I just want to know, like, spitballing top of mind how you would answer these questions. Okay. Okay. So your favorite book is. I'm going. Yeah, I see. Most influential book you ever read was? The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison. The last thing you read that was a waste of time was? Ooh. <laughs> people, always, people always love this question. People love that one. Yeah, it's a great one. A waste of time. Mm, I don't want to do my girl like this, but sour grapes. Okay, okay, okay. Got it. Best snack to eat while reading? Um, dry mangoes. That could also be a drink, too. Sorry, what was that? Dried mangoes and water. Cool. Last purchase you made that still excites you? Ooh, it was a gift for my partner. It was a basketball that was cut out and had a plant in it. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh, fuck yeah. I want my fiance to give me one of those. Okay. (laughs) Most underappreciated writer is? Rachel Kaziganza. She does long forms and I think she's working on a book. I will drop a, a link to her in show notes because if she's underappreciated, we can help to change that. Uh, most overrated writer is J.K. Rowling. Oh. Transphobic ass. <laughs> yes, yes, so much yes. <laughs> Recipe you discovered in quarantine that you now cannot live without. Ooh, quinoa and black bean tacos. Ooh, Yummy. I'm adding that to my list. Yum. Protein, protein. <laughs> book, a book that doesn't get enough love. Um, I say love by Toni Morrison. Okay. Finally, what is your favorite thing about being black? Um, the black card, because I be pulling it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, you really got to say that to me? I My black it. ass. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's so the real. end of the 10 questions. I think that was the most... <laughs> yeah. That was our favorite rapid fire yet. Thank right. you so much for that. Right, right. <laughs> 
So good. Well, Katie, <sighs> thank you so, so much for being on our show today. We were so grateful to have you. So grateful to hear you, to see you, to learn about you. Um, how can our listeners find you. you? How can our listeners support the store? Um, give us all the yummy info so they can keep in touch with you. They can buy Plugs, books from please. you. Please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so you can buy books from us at goodbooksatl.com. That's our online shop. There's also a contact button. So if you want to donate some black books, if you want to just donate some money and not buy a book, if you Ooh, great. are in the press and want to write a story about us or you're another podcast uh, group and want me to be on your podcast, all that is in the contact info. Um, we're also on Instagram. So at goodbooksatl, give us a follow, share our stuff. Um, we do curated book bundles. So um, hit me up for that. You can just DM me, tell me what type of books you're interested in and what's your budget. And I got you. I like that. I love that. Yeah. So check us out. Oh, I love that curated it's a great idea. book bundle. Yeah, yeah it's you. great for any sort of gifting that is going to be coming up in the future. That's okay. Yeah. Get, your, get, y'all, get y'all December gifts in time because <laughs> yeah. okay. I ain't trying to play with y'all. <laughs> We'll be hitting you up for that because I have a young reader that needs some new books for sure. Katie, thank you so, so, so much for doing this. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. We had such a great time. To any podcasters listening, you want Katie as a guest. She's super fun to talk to. I promise you that. Um, And Good Books ATL. Check it out. All books are good books. Mm -hmm. All black books are good books. All black Ooh. books are good books. <laughs> I, again, I sit corrected. I'm very sorry. Uh, and with that, guys, that is our show. Happy Very Literary August. We will be back next week. I believe we'll be back with a publisher, a female publisher, TBD. Um, but this is the Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to find us on Instagram, we are on the gram at Black and Yellow Podcast. If you want to shoot us an email, we are podcastblackandyellow at gmail.com. You can also find us individually. I am Alana Webster, but on the gram, I am at Renegade of Fun. I am Jacqueline Chung-Young on the gram. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You guys are lovely listeners of the show. If you guys want to rate, review us, let us know what you think about us. It keeps this baby going. And until then, keep reading. And if you need a new book, Get up good books. I mean, yeah. there's no reason not to. <laughs> right. Uh, right we love you guys, and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.